2: Uh, The interview that you're about to hear contains themes of suicide that some listeners may find confronting. It's not suitable for young listeners, and if you're listening whilst driving, I suggest that you catch up with the show later on 3CR online or via podcast. Welcome to The Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM radio and 3CR on digital. Hi, I'm Bill, and I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. This land was stolen, sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the show, our guests volunteer their time to share their experience in dealing with the effects of alcohol, gambling, drugs, and food on their lives, and to encourage understanding of the nature of addiction and the recovery options available. Today, my guest is Alison. She's a member of Adopt Children of Alcoholics, and she'll be sharing about how it has helped her recover from growing up in a dysfunctional family. So welcome to the show, Alison.
1: Oh, thanks. Hi, how are you?
2: Good. Thank you. Alison, I understand that ACA is a program for adult children recovering from the effects of family disease of alcoholism and other dysfunction. Adult Children of Alcoholics is a 12 step support group focused on understanding the specific behavior and attitude patterns developed while growing up in these environments. Patterns that continue to influence even today. By attending regular ACA meetings, members develop a better understanding of the past so as to more effectively restructure their lives and make positive and healthy choices today. So that's what I gleaned from the ACA website. And I guess we usually start talking about growing up and sort of the influences on our lives. So would you like to talk about your, your early family life and how that impacted you?
1: Yeah, I was born in England. I was the youngest of three daughters. And we lived in a house that looked very respectable, and for all intents we looked like a very respectable family on the outside. Um, there weren't any any overt signs of alcoholism, uh, but there was rage and workaholism, perfectionism, eating disorders, and depression. My mother had. It wasn't until my mother was 65 that she was diagnosed with bipolar, so she coped with that all her life. Anyway, when I was seven, my parents divorced and I was sent to live in Kenya in Africa. My father moved there with his new wife and um my sisters and my mother stayed in England and were sent off to Africa when uh, physical abuse began in Africa by uh, my stepmother who um much later in my life, I came to realise I was an alcoholic. Um, but at that stage, it wasn't daily. There wasn't anybody falling over drunk or anything like that. So it wasn't obvious to me that that was, uh, uh, or to anyone, that that was a problem. Um, accompanied this, the um, physical punishment or the physical abuse came diets. but put on a very strict diet, even though I wasn't really very much overweight, but uh, my stepmother was obsessed with that. And um, So
2: what did your dad do at this point? Did he intervene or help?
1: My father initially defended me against my stepmother. However, he um, quickly learnt that she made his life um, very difficult if he did that, and he stopped defending me. Also, a, a, a triangle developed where I was seen to be the persecutor and my dad the rescuer and my stepmother the victim, and at least that's how she would paint my behaviour or whatever it was that I was alleged to have done. Yeah, so, uh, of course, I didn't know that as a seven-year-old. <laughs> it's only something I've learned since.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's funny being able to look back and realise that, I guess, the powerlessness of of yourself as a child in that situation, isn't
1: it? So uh, my younger sister was born in Kenya. And um, and I guess the atmosphere in the household was my, my, my parents, my stepmother and my father fought every single day. And uh, so it wasn't a very um, calm or nurturing environment. I constantly had to be on my toes and was all constantly thinking about what other people needed or what other people wanted.
0: Mm.
1: What about school at this point? Were you able
2: to get any sort of respite going to school?
1: Well, that's in, that's an interesting question. The, <laughs> uh, I had begun school in England, of course, and, and then when I went to school in Kenya, school was quite complicated because I had to learn new money. I had to learn metric, and England was using imperial measurements at the time. Uh, so Maths, uh, which was a sort of a focus in our home, was quite problematic. Also, uh, my stepmother decided the best way to teach me my timetables was to hit me every time I got one wrong. That wasn't a very effective method, I have to say. Uh, And the um, the same with uh, reading. If I made a mistake while I was reading out loud, I also got physically, I got hit. So life was not very happy. I did start to escape into books though. So I became an avid reader. Yeah. So how long did this go on for? Okay, well, we stayed in Kenya for about three years and then we migrated to Australia. And having had servants in Kenya that did the housework, I now uh, was required to do most of the housework. And everything was... Everything had to be done to a perfect standard, which, of course, I struggled with. And I didn't realise too that if you tried to be perfect, that it actually was a trick. A perfectionist is someone who who finds fault with everything. So as much as I tried to get it done perfectly, that that actually wasn't possible. Or if if I did achieve to a certain standard, then the focus would just be shifted onto the next task. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yes, I've heard a definition of uh, perfectionist as somebody who takes great pains and transfers them to someone else.
1: Yes. Well, of course, I became like it myself eventually. But uh, at that time, it was, I kept trying to win approval by trying to get it right, trying to get it right. You know, it was like, get it right, get it right. Yeah. So in, in Australia, by the time I went to high school, I'd been to six different schools on three different continents. And if my maths was stuffed up by going to Kenya, we briefly returned to England and I was required to go to school and they were changing the money over. And then it came to Australia um, and they weren't metric at the time, so I had to relearn imperial measurements, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But when you're at school and they're, Lots of the maths is based on around measurement and um, money, you know, in primary school in particular. So to learn the new money and um, the measurement also <laughs> in Australia, they at the time they used rods. Well, they also used to use those overseas as well. However, the rods in Kenya and England are different colours to the rods used in Australia. I don't know if people are familiar with rods but anyway
2: and i think it's called cuisenaire oh, it used to be called cuisenaire i think
1: yes well that's the correct yeah that, that's the correct term for it well the original cuisenaire were designed with specific colors and so when i came to australia for example in the original cuisenaire a two is pink whereas in australian Cuis- rods the three is pink yeah so when they used to say, put pink and pink and what do you get? You know, I get four, literally, and they get six. And, um, yeah, so it was very, very confusing. <laughs> yes. Still, school was some respite from home. So did you have many friends in high school? No, I had difficulty with friends. Um, yeah, so no, I didn't have many Um And my eating disorder, for want of a better word, um, had really taken off. And um, so some of my behaviours were, I'm ashamed to say, centred around that. So like my best friend, I would beg her for a sandwich every day. Because I wasn't allowed to have sandwiches. I had salad every day. And in those days, there was no cool bricks or refrigerated containers or anything. So by lunchtime, it was putrid. So I used to beg my best friend, supposedly best friend, for her sandwich every day. And if she wouldn't give it to me, I used to hit it out of her hand because she wouldn't eat it if it fell on the ground, but I would. Yeah, so my, my compulsive eating was already, you know, quite progressed by the time I got to high school. Um,
2: schooling was a problem. Friendship was a problem. Eating was a problem. So was there any aspect of your life that you felt
1: comfortable with? I did have a friend. My parents used to play bridge in Kenya with a, a couple and their son was the same age as me and he became my best friend and they migrated to Australia after we did. And his mother felt sorry for me and so she used to take me on holidays with them and things like that. So that added some fun into my life and, uh, and some in some ways, some normalcy. However, as it uh, turned out, she was an alcoholic and so was my best friend.
2: Oh, right. Good so how did you get on with your stepsister?
1: Uh, I got on well. There was a seven-year age gap, so often I was tasked with looking after her. Uh, and after four years in Australia, my second sister was born, my youngest sister was born, and there's a 13-year-age gap between us. And so I was very much like, in my head, a, a mother. I adored her as a as a child and um, often took care of her. I, used to, I was often charged with taking care of kids, which was in some ways okay because it was something I liked to do and uh, I could put my energy and imagination into having fun. Yeah,
0: being
1: being a parent. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> except it, it, uh, I could also do things like, you know, dress up and dress them up and play with them for extended periods of time. So. Yeah.
2: So what were your teenage years like then uh, before you left school?
1: Uh, I... Um, how I thought about myself at the time was right from Kenya, was that I thought there was something really deeply wrong with me and uh, I didn't seem to be able to get anything right. And sort of in my child mind was very much that my own mother didn't want me. So I thought there must be something really bad. And my also my child image of my high power God was that I was being punished like I didn't understand, so I thought, okay, well, obviously God thinks I'm, or knows that I'm defective as well in some way. So by the time I hit 13, sexual abuse entered into my life uh, at home by my parents, and um, I started thinking about suicide. Then life was, you know, I hated myself. I hated the way I was living. Yeah, I was just really. Um, a very unhappy, a very unhappy teenager. I also like constantly being told how to feel. Like I wasn't allowed to feel my own feelings. I had to feel what my parents thought I should feel. So, for example, if I laughed and they deemed that that wasn't funny, I'd be shamed and ridiculed. Or, for example, I was never allowed to express anger. Um, that was only the the unwritten rule was that it was all right for the adults to be angry with the children, but it wasn't all, the the reverse was not allowed. So anger had to be suppressed.
0: Yeah.
2: So leaving high school, then. Yep. Did, did things change? Were you able to move out of home?
1: I moved out when I was 17, and I went to teachers' college. I went back to England when I was 17 and told my mother how I'd been treated. And I didn't find out till years later that she didn't believe me. But whilst I was in England, I um, I was 17. My brother-in-law was 27. Um, There were problems in his marriage. I looked a lot like his, what my sister, my older sister had looked when um, he met her anyway. I was like a lovesick puppy. I just followed him everywhere and initially one thing led to another and we had sex. Then he went home and told his wife, my, my sister, who then told my mother, and I just thought at that point, oh, my God, I've destroyed my family. Like I think in my, in my head for years would be like I'll, when I finally get to see my mother, I'll tell her what's been happening and she will you know, rescue me from this situation so a, a year after that um i attempted uh, at college uh, i actually well. attempted suicide i thought i destroyed my whole family life was didn't seem worth living i couldn't control my weight well in my head i couldn't control my weight i had body dysmorphia which i didn't know i had that um i thought i was just huge grotesque ugly etc um i couldn't even see in photographs the difference in size of my body I just all my photographs I just looked huge in my mind wow. life life was very um life was very unhappy I managed to get through college uh, graduated and I went back to Kenya to teach and there I've I found some happiness and I met a man and married him much to my family's horror I wasn't I didn't realize how racist my natural mother was she um was horrified that I had married a black Kenyan. And, uh, yeah, so it was a pretty ugly side to see. For example, when I was in England visiting her later, I had to take my wedding rings off, wasn't allowed to talk about my husband. It was quite bizarre, and it wasn't until my mother's death in 2013 at her funeral I found out that when she got remarried to someone who was born in India, has Indian parents, that my grandmother refused to go to her wedding. Because, you know, and that been kept secret from me all my life. i tried to discuss racism, but um, in my mother's mind, that was, it didn't exist.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's very convenient, isn't it? Yes. Okay, awesome. We might take a short break and have some music and some announcements. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multigender attracted people including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity, and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multigender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at buy-alliance.org, email info at buy-alliance.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11 a.m. with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and Dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11 a.m. Tuesdays on 3CR.
0: (laughs) ra 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 ra
2: Uh, The first song we had was uh, called Such a Shame, a new release by Amy Elise, uh, who's from Queensland, and that was made available by Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how you can contact us. Today, I'm talking with Alison, and we're talking about her recovery with the help of adult children of alcoholics. Uh, so, Alison, before the break, we were talking about you getting married in Kenya. Uh, I think you were teaching as well. So what was your life like sort of being away from away from everybody and starting a new relationship?
1: Uh, well, I, I thought that being that far away from my family, which was the other appealing thing about going back to Kenya, that somehow my life would be fixed, I was very focused outwardly and what I came to realise, of course, that uh, the main problem was that I went with myself. But initially in my relationship we were very happy and, yeah, it was a really good time in my life. We came back to Australia after three years, yeah, and uh, my marriage was to last another six years before I realised there was something really wrong. When we came to Australia, my husband's, drinking escalated, and I was totally focused on his drinking and trying to control that and trying to control him. I had chosen a perfect candidate, if you like, because he even needed help with English. So I was standing beside him when he was on the phone feeding him words. Um, so I was just so focused on his uh, life and trying to control it. Uh, a friend of mine said, uh, read the book Women Who Love Too Much by Robin Norwood, and follow the suggestions in the back of the book. When I read the book, I couldn't believe it. I was like, she, I was reading about my, myself, how I'd lost total focus, like my whole focus on life was on my husband, and um, thinking that if I could just do this, or if, if he'd just do that, and I was waiting for him to change, thinking that somehow the problem was in my choice of partner, which in some ways it was, but the real problem was my focus on my partner, not on myself. The book also suggested going to the 12-Step Fellowship most relevant to you. And so I started going to Overeaters Anonymous because I knew I was defeated when it came to food and dieting and exercising. I tried all sorts of things. I didn't believe the steps would work when I first read them. I was so suspicious of, like, you know, where was the money really going that they were collecting That actually worked in my favour, though, because I went to as many meetings as possible to try and find out (laughs) who was really getting this money. I couldn't conceive of an organisation that wasn't about getting something from you. I was suicidal, uh, very unhappy. I separated from my husband. The decision I made in step three wasn't to turn my will and my life over, but was to work through the 12 steps, prove they didn't work, and then commit suicide. Initially, I started out with a step a week. That proved a little bit, well, it was insane. Then I shifted to a step a month. And to my amazement, by the time I was making my amends in step nine, the compulsion to eat and the compulsion where just obsessively thinking about food or not having food or a diet or how much I weighed or what did I look like was lifted. And so I came to believe in something outside of myself. Can you
2: talk a little bit more about what it was that helped you to relax, you know, to lose the obsession with food and, and image and things like that, you know, body image and stuff like that. So what, was there anything that, that you can see that helped you overcome that obsession?
1: Only that I worked through the steps and that by doing that, it connected me with something outside of myself, which initially I thought I didn't believe in. But then I discovered I was angry with, and then was like, oh my God, if I if I'm angry with God, I must believe there is a God. Then I was really angry about that as well, because I was sure I was sure that there wasn't one. I can only put it down to in turning my will and my life over to the care of a power greater than me and trying to establish a connection with that higher power through meditation, prayer going to meetings, etc., all the normal things that people do in fellowship, yeah, it oh. it transformed me.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it really was a spiritual experience as a result of the steps. And, I mean, I was still incredibly mm-hmm. low, had mm-hmm. low self-esteem, didn't feel comfortable about my body and things like that. I didn't suddenly go, oh, wow, I'm just so amazing. But nothing had stopped that obsession ever before. Occasionally I would have used alcohol in the past every six months or so to wipe myself out and that was the only thing. That and general anaesthetic were the only two things that stopped my head. So my head was going 24-7 and thinking, 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 analysing, analysing reanalyzing I was told that the slogan think, think, think was not a good one for me but to replace
0: it
1: with feel, feel, feel.
2: Yeah. So um, that, that was quite useful advice. Yes, sounds like it. So uh, overcoming your obsession with, with food and weight and how other people perceived you, but you still had the feelings of inadequacy. So how, how did life progress?
1: Well, I started going to AA initially because I thought, They wrote the steps so I would get a better understanding of them. Um, But I realised after some time that I actually am an alcoholic. My drinking wasn't daily. Um, I could still put it down. I hated the taste, but I understood enough about it to see that whereas my compulsive eating was fully blown addiction, my alcoholism or my addiction to alcohol was in its infancy. So um, after going to AA for three years saying, you lucky people, you only have to put down alcohol. I have to put down chocolate, ice cream, blah, blah, blah. uh, (laughs) I then had to admit that I was actually an alcoholic myself, which was incredibly difficult. So
2: why was it so hard to admit you're an alcoholic?
1: Because I genuinely didn't believe I was one.
2: You know, it's, it's pretty easy to admit things.
1: I felt incredibly ashamed that I didn't know that about myself and that, I was, again, I was so focused on all the drinkers that were in my life that I was often the designated driver. So I had all these reasons why I couldn't be an alcoholic. I still had such a narrow view that alcoholics had to drink every day yeah, I thought that the amount of alcohol and the frequency with which you drank it and the reliance upon it in your life had to be much greater than 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 the desire I had. But I see in that putting down sugar in particular, refined sugar, I put down refined sugar because I recognise I'm actually addicted to it. When, when it goes in my body, it does different things. So often I was high on, for example, the lemon squash before I even added the gin. So I could dance on tables, for example, on the high from the lemon squash.
0: Yeah.
1: In hindsight, I can see that they were ways of trying to relax, trying to try and to socialise. If I chose to put gin in my lemon squash, it usually was for the purpose of getting drunk. Like the, that was the focus. I didn't like the taste. No. Admitting an addiction is something that people hide. It's not something people. Mm-hmm run around announcing that they're exposing their weaknesses, if for want of a better word. I added to that the shame I felt in that having gone to the meetings for three years and selling them all up, you know, poor me, I've got to put down all this stuff and all you've got to put down is alcohol. (laughs) There's a big difference between the food and the alcohol addictions in that the first part of recovery with an alcohol addiction is to stop having alcohol. With a food addiction, you've got to face it every day.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, so it's it was more complicated in that sense, but you still can be put down alcohol and then be as mad as a hatter. Yes. It just depends how well you you work it. And then when I was once I realized I was an alcoholic, people in AA then told me to go to Al-Anon, and like I was really pissed off about that because it's like aren't the steps the steps? You know how many times can you work them type of thing? But they were right. And, again, it was something that was obvious to everybody except me. Mm. Got married in my third year in 12-step fellowships to a man who's now 36 years sober in AA. I'm 31 years sober myself. I met him when he was five years sober. So right at the beginning of my recovery journey, when we're still together, we have a loving relationship. But that hasn't been easy. it has been a lot of work. And working, for me, I have had to work all three fellowships.
2: Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between AA and Al-Anon as far as what you're dealing with?
1: The people in Al-Anon made it very clear about the difference between AA and Al-Anon. In Al-Anon, it's more about my relationships with other people, detaching with love, yeah, learning better relationship skills. I mean, in the AA literature, it says in Step 8 that defective human relationships are the cause of nearly all our problems, including our alcoholism. Yeah. So even though that, that fellowship, the, the initial focus is stopping drinking, but then it's, you've got to live after that. It's like you have to replace the alcohol with something. In Al Anon, it was more difficult to see that in effect what I was dealing with was my addiction to addicts.
2: (laughs) Trying to control them, yeah.
1: Yeah. And the, the thought that happiness lies in trying to change your partner, like it's something your partner's doing that's causing the unhappiness, that if only they would do this or if only they would do that. And the insanity of that is. I want to commit suicide, you know, because my life's so unmanageable, yet I can tell other people how to live their lives. So learning how to relate to other people in a healthy way. And also, I guess, too, what came with my second marriage was stepchildren. Right. So having to deal with children that had grown up in a home with alcoholism, active alcoholism. I found there was nothing like that to put my defects right in front of my face.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) They tend to highlight it, don't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Al-Anon was to help me, especially in that area of my life.
2: Okay. Well, listen, we might take another short break there. CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation providing health and support services in Melbourne. In late 2021, CoHealth facilitated a workshop for women from diverse cultural backgrounds on effective communication skills for social and professional settings. Positive outcomes for workshop participants were collaborative discussions in safe spaces and onward access to support services. To learn more about our services and programs, visit cohealth.org.au. CoHealth is a 3CR supporter.
1: Oh, like a <speaking in German> <speaking in German> Black and Yeah, join me at 11 every Friday for some Black and Deadly sound. please share Community Radio, 855 on the AM drive. voice of the people. the
0: Said. if only i'd said what was in my head if only my life would you just be gone if only i could start all over
2: second song was If Only by Ben Conneroff, also from Queensland. And music was also a new release courtesy of AMRAP. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And today I'm talking with Alison about her recovery and how adult children of alcoholics has helped her. So Alison, before the break, we are talking about being in Al-Anon and talking a bit about the difference between AA and Al-Anon and about you know trying to control and setting up healthy relationships and things. So how did things progress in Al-Anon then?
1: In all three fellowships, my life dramatically changed. On the outside, initially, or for the better, still problems. Initially, I thought that if you had 12 Steps, and you worked them and you had a higher power, life would be rosy. Uh, After four years, I was diagnosed with depression, which, of course, I'd had all my life, but I just thought that it was so normal to me, I just didn't know any other way. I also thought depression was an excuse because I was taught just to get on with it. Uh, But I was totally baffled that I could have depression when I had this amazing program in my life, all these wonderful things that happened in my life. For example, my mother came to my my second wedding and I was able to see that she actually loved me. My parents made amends to each other at our wedding, which just blew my mind. They're not even in program, but yet that was a direct result of my husband and I being in program. Yes, anyway, so with the depression, it was like, I can't be depressed. I've got a program. You know, I've got a high power. How can I be depressed? And so, again, it was another level of learning that, Life happens on life's terms. I had started counselling as well, like therapy, and as reluctant as I was, I eventually accepted medication for the depression because the psychiatrist I saw initially said to me, so you won't take a tablet, but you'll spend part of your day planning how you're going to kill yourself. (laughs) And I I was able to (laughs) see that that wasn't very rational. So um, <laughs> I like, oh, okay, I'll take it. But I wasn't happy about it. Of course, the chemistry of my brain and the chemistry of my body was completely altered by the experiences in childhood. But somehow I felt really ashamed about taking medication for, I guess, a problem that I didn't have physical symptoms. And I, I just thought everybody thought about suicide all the time. <laughs> I really did. You know, and when I'd been saying to my friends over the years, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll just kill myself, which was my answer to facing something that was difficult. I meant it. It wasn't until years later that i realised they just thought I was, it was just sort of like a throwaway remark.
0: Yeah.
1: And for all my life I'd been told to lighten up, and I had no idea what people meant by lightening up. You know, I'd ask people, how do you lighten up? And then I'd think, oh, I'll do a course on lightening up. Oh, uh, I'll read a book on lightning up all the time. Of course, having not being able to see that the very thing that I was doing was what they were talking about that I needed to change. Mm. So I needed a power outside of myself to open my mind further to be able to be open to change. You know, in Alanon they talk about three A's: awareness, acceptance, and action. And previously in my life. I've always gone from it, if I became aware of something, I immediately want to do something about it. Whereas Alanon taught me you need, there's a process of acceptance that needs to happen before if that takes place. But coming into the fellowships, uh, what happened was a better set of problems. So the problem of a mortgage was better than the problem of rent, for example. Uh, the problem of how to have a relationship was a better problem than trying to control someone else, mm. trying to sort of um, force a relationship somehow.
2: Yeah, <laughs> manipulate.
1: Yes. The yeah, four M's, manipulating, mothering, managing and martyrdom, perfected all of those. So unlearning those is quite a, a challenge, which, of course, alanon has been very helpful with that.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, Can I just ask quickly? What your husband thought as you were going through all this,
1: was he supportive? Oh, completely, yes. And he could see good in me from the start. And he also, um, it was amazing. Like I had a lower back problem, so he went and did a massage course to learn how to massage my back. So I'd never had such compassion or caring in another person. Uh, we also had to have relationship counselling. We had family counselling. We, The boys had lots of problems we had uh, to deal with his ex because his daughter wasn't living with us just the two boys and so we'd have she would come down every second weekend and holidays so all of that sort of stuff put strains on relationship we did many 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 relationship courses weekend residential workshops read books went and listened to speakers Did support groups, went to parenting groups, you know, and all that sort of thing. You know, I came to realise that if you haven't had a good parenting model, I needed to learn how to do that in a healthy way. And uh, I wanted to do it perfectly, of course, which, you know, they say if perfectionism was in your disease, it won't be in your recovery. And I guess for me, it's like doesn't stop me trying to get it still that mantra in my head, get it right, get it right, you got to get it right but at least I'm learning to appreciate when I achieve something today as opposed to just moving on to well, what's the next thing I need to do. Don't mm. so dismiss it. You know, I've had to learn how to esteem myself.
2: I was going to ask you a question about work. So how was work going for you at this time?
1: Okay, so uh, I work full-time right away through all of my recovery and work had become a really happy place. Got on really well with my boss, and I really enjoyed what I was doing, and got a lot of satisfaction out of that. Um, that was to change, though. We got a, a new boss who a bullying situation developed at work. Initially, my supervisor was able to protect me from that, but um, he bullied her also. He bullied pretty much all the mature-aged women in the workplace, and one by one, they all left. Uh, eventually, my supervisor left and um, my, the work environment became toxic. And uh, after a really painful experience, I realised where, where he actually got other people to bully me. And I realised if they're willing to do it on his behalf, then really this is not a safe place for me. So, despite being the breadwinner at that stage, um, John having retired during two, two health reasons. I couldn't see anything to do except leave work, which I did. I took leave initially. What actually had happened, like in hindsight, was that the work situation where my life was micromanaged and I was being suspected of doing things wrong all the time and resembled very much my childhood home. And so what had actually happened was it had triggered the trauma of my childhood, of which I was not aware that it was even classified as a trauma at that stage. I went into South Pacific Private Hospital and they diagnosed complex PTSD. And also someone from ACA came in and told their story and I just identified so much. And I thought, ah, maybe this is the missing piece. By then I'd been working the steps in my life for many years and I couldn't understand how my life could just come so unraveled. I was like, well, what's going on? You know, it's like um, I, thought, I thought my high power deserted me. But I came to realise that it was trauma, you know, the trauma. Yes, so then I, I started going to ACA then, seven years ago now, and have been learning then a lot more about myself and about trauma and how it impacts and how basically I was able to cope with it by disassociating from my emotions, often disassociating from my body, that all things that I was using and the situation at work just brought things to a head uh, eventually I was to um, resign from work I did go back to work I was I was able to work again successfully which was fantastic the supervisor that had left was in a position where she was able to offer me a temporary job for a year and that was amazing because it just restored my faith in my ability at work and my confidence and made me see that I was good at my job, whereas part of the bullying was to point out all the time why I was a failure, you know, sort of constant negative criticism. Uh, in ACA, I've learnt that in my mind, like I can hear my voice now, My, I, in effect, the, the critical voice in my head, in effect, that was once my parents is now my own. Of course, I haven't lived in that house for many, many years, but that voice lives in my head. And is very quick to point out where I'm at fault, or so ACA, you know, because I was totally baffled. Of course, four fellowships—it's like, you know, <laughs> most people have a full life with one fellowship, and I was baffled. At it. But I've learned just to accept. It's like not to waste time asking why, 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 which is what I always wanted to know before. You know, why is this happening? And just accept that it happens and that that it's happened and that for now this is my path. Getting in touch with my inner child, which I always sort of thought was a ridiculous concept, that there actually is a, a, a little me that's neglected and wounded and that the solution in ACA is to become a loving parent to myself and that's even harder than actual parenting my stepchildren, (laughs) which still proves to be challenging how many years on, but it also is an area where there are enormous rewards. So, you know, this was the first year that my eldest stepson sent me flowers for Mother's Day, for example. Uh, It wasn't so much the flowers, it was also the message that came with them. The youngest stepchild is a girl and she's 37 and she's just given birth to her first baby and for the first time in my life i could see why people have children like this child's born into a loving family where she's wanted and she's loved and i couldn't imagine calming her or ignoring her or neglecting her like it's just total foreign concept yeah but I didn't realize, you know, it's only through ACA I've come to realize that I had that attitude about myself that I was worthless still, still after all this time, still underneath it all, you know, thinking there's something still where I had, in effect, put on my stepmother's eyes and looked at myself through my stepmother's lens that I'm not important, that I'm worthless, that I'm whatever, and then looked at my stepchildren my own experiencing as a mother and just it just baffled me like it was like why why do people have children just endless source of stress but basically for me underneath it all was that I just didn't value myself as a as a child you know an ACA they look at your inner child and I've also been introduced to my inner teenager and that was a new concept that's pretty wild she is mad with the world and also part of her job was to protect the inner child so i didn't even realize that often she's running the show so getting in touch with those deeper parts of myself is very much what my journey in aca is about and also recognizing when trauma is triggered and how to cope with that like how to soothe how to to recognize even that that's what's happened one of the biggest differences between complex PTSD and PTSD is that in PTSD flashbacks are usually visual with complex PTSD the flashbacks are usually emotional so you don't even know often you've been triggered into a certain emotional state until long after the event like sometimes I can't even work out what triggered me it's sort of like um one minute I'm driving the car, and then all of a sudden the car is being driven by this angry teenager who is a lot bigger risk taker and um, and a lot less nurturing, like just so angry. Mm. Yeah, so it might not sound very appealing to people, but well, it just it's such a relief to understand what's happening and why it's happening, and I also am so out of touch with my own body. So a lot of my healing work um, is discovering ways to feel. Like I thought disassociation was always like a big thing, like when I totally check out, um, when I get a fright, for example. But I found out that disassociation can be as simple as not knowing what you're feeling. If I don't know what I'm feeling, I'm disassociated. So those sorts of light bulb moments help me. My husband helped me enormously still and... Mm. Uh, we're still in a loving relationship um, and I've learned a lot about relationship skills in that he's responsible for his personal growth, I'm responsible for my personal growth and together we're responsible for the relationship. Mm. That forcing someone or trying to manipulate them to do something its not the way to happiness, not for me. <laughs> no.
2: <laughs> That's for sure. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Alison. It's really good and lovely to hear your story and thank you for sharing your experience with us and talking about how adult children of alcoholics has helped you
1: yeah, thank you you're welcome and I'll just mention that um, at the world business Conference of ACA they voted to change the name so it might it's not won't be well known yet but dysfunctional families is now part of the name so it's actually i don't know what the new acronym will be whether they'll so it's uh, Adult Children of Alcoholic and Dysfunctional Family is actually the name of the of the organisation.
0: Okay.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll give people the, what it is currently and yeah. 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 they'll have to <laughs> cope yeah. with any changes. Um, so if anybody listening would like to find out more about Adult Children of Alcoholics, uh, you can visit their website, which is adultchildren.org.au, for details of their meetings and contact information. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature another recovery story and talk about programs that can help people suffering from various addictions as well as their family and friends. Coming up next, we have Balamwa, The Spirit of Wa, hosted by Uncle Talgium Choco Edwards. Join him on a journey of belonging and movement through sing alongs and yarns. If this interview has raised issues for you and you need help, then you can call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on one 224 636 for assistance. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we've got Game A by Bortia Oko. Again, uh, song courtesy of Australian Music Radio
0: Airplay Project. <laughs> Nyi la kwa ma wonsho ne billion et come Nyi la kwa ma wonsho e billion Nyi la kwa ma wonsho ne billion et la kwa ma et lawe ne billion Nyi la kwa ma wonsho ne ne picome Nyi la kwa ma da Nyi ne billion